A reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, we're looking at just the first six verses this morning in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe and know this day by faith that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. We thank you for the gift of your Son, and we thank you for the blessing of the revelation of your word regarding your Son. And today, as your disciples, your children, we look to your hand in the Word, and we consider the history of the generations leading to Christ, who is the son of Abraham. Today, would you open up our eyes and our minds and our hearts to behold the wonders that you have for us in this, your Word. Come. And speak into our lives now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you will remember it was just a couple of weeks ago that we finished up a series in the prophet Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. And I told you then as we finished the book of Malachi, that we're going to, in some sense, continue with the similar themes that Malachi was addressing in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, those final verses of the whole of the Old Testament, by turning our attention to Matthew. We're just a couple of pages removed from Malachi in your copy of God's Word. If you actually have your Bibles with you and they're open this morning, you could turn just a couple of pages back to Malachi and see right where we have been there for six, seven, or eight weeks as we spent time working our way through that prophecy. And one of the things that we saw in that prophecy was the fact that it was an end and it was a beginning. It was an end in the sense that it was a culmination of all of what the Old Testament was pointing to through each of its pages, which is why Malachi ends by talking about Moses in the book of the law, going all the way back to the beginning of the Scriptures, and talking about Elijah and the prophets speaking to the narrative of Scripture. And then he calls us to look for the Son of Righteousness who's coming, 
who will rise with healing in his wings. The day of the Lord is going to come. That's what Malachi tells us. And he says that when that day of the Lord comes, it's going to come like an oven with the white hot wrath of God, scorching, as it were, those who are arrogant and evildoers. But for those who fear the Lord's name, it will come like a new dawning of a new day. It'll come like the warmth of the morning sun across your countenance. He will be a son of righteousness. This, this Messiah whom we are looking for, this son of righteousness, he will rise with healing in his wings. And remarkably, when we come to the end of the, uh, the prophecy of Malachi, when we come to the final words of the Old Testament, the final words of the Old Testament are saying, we are not the final words. There's going to be more to see. There's going to be more to look for. There's going to be a son of righteousness, a Messiah who will come. And so it's appropriate that we would conclude Malachi by spending a few weeks here in the season of Advent by considering who is that son of righteousness with healing in his wings, who will receive the wrath of God for his people on the cross, who will indeed be the Savior of the world, the one whose name is above all names. Now, you would expect then, with that kind of anticipation at the end of the book of Malachi, that Matthew would know that his charge is important. He is the opening words of this new installment of biblical revelation. He is the very first writer of the New Testament who will give to us the story of this son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. You must know that Matthew would know that as he's opening up the New Testament, and so he begins it in a riveting way with a list of names. I hope you had at least a little bit of compassion on me as I was working my way through those names a second ago. This edge-of-the-seat page-turner section in the book of Matthew. Well, it was a page-turner, edge-of-the-seat for those who were the original audience, you understand. They knew what Matthew was up to when he, when he started with a genealogy. They understood that there was a method to the madness. They knew that he was up to something. What is he up to? Well, he wants to write a new Genesis. A new Genesis. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's think a little bit about genealogies for just a minute. How about it? A genealogy, a list of names, as we see it here in the Gospel of Matthew, those sections in the Bible, whether we're reading Chronicles or whether we're reading Genesis or whatever it is that we're reading, so those list of names that you usually skip over in the Bible, these genealogies is really a story of God's redemption throughout the generations. That's how the people of Israel would have understood it. This long lineage of faithfulness, this list of names of God's promised people, in fact, the word generation and the word genealogy come from the very same root word, and that root word is the word Genesis, which makes perfect sense because what does a genealogy do? Well, it takes us all the way back to the origins. It takes us all the way back to our beginnings. It helps us know where it is that we've come from. And in a way, Matthew is saying to us, in the way that Genesis 
which is structured as a book of the Bible in the Old Testament according to 12 different genealogies. If you were to go back through the book of Genesis, which we did several years ago together as a congregation, you would see those 12 genealogies structure the unfolding of this looking for the seed that is going to come, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. That's why Genesis is filled with genealogy, this looking to the seed. And so when Matthew opens the beginning of his gospel, the beginning of the New Testament with a genealogy, the Jewish reader says, Aha! I see what you're doing here. You're going back and you're writing for us a Genesis of the New Testament. A Genesis that goes all the way back to, well, Genesis. You see, this, this Matthew genealogy is 17 verses long, only six of which we're going to look at today, the rest which we'll look at next week together. It takes us all the way back to the opening pages in the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham, which is why we read that text earlier in our service today. It traces the line of Abraham all the way to David, the, the high watermark in in Israel-like history, and then from Solomon, the descent down into the Babylonian exile and captivity. And by the end of it, we'll have a rise as we look to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes through this promised seed. There's rises and there's falls, there's ups and there's downs, there's left and there's rights all throughout this genealogy. But part of what we're seeing at the beginning of the book of Matthew is that he wants us to know that he's picking up the story. Here is part two, the sequel. To all of what God has promised in the Old Testament, now coming to you in the fulfillment of the true seed of Abraham. What is his name? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is his name. When we look at the genealogy today and look at these first six verses together, I want you to see this new Genesis is starting out driving home to us the idea of promise. And this new Genesis is driving home to us the idea that there is a problem. And this new genealogy, this new Genesis that is given to us here in Matthew is driving home to us that God has a redemptive purpose. I want you to see the promise, the problem, and the purpose of why it is that Matthew begins this, his gospel of Jesus Christ with the genealogy. Now, I mentioned earlier that we read from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and we did that because, well, you can see how the whole genealogy begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're focusing on the son of Abraham part uh, this morning. We're, we're focusing on this idea, even as was alluded to in our confession of sin this morning, the fact that there is a name that is going to be great. I will make your name great, Abraham, but it won't just be your name. It'll be through you that I will bring forth the name that is above all names, that through you, Abraham, a seed will be born, a seed who will be the Messiah. It makes sense then that Matthew would open his gospel, wouldn't it, with with Abraham. For he knows, as he writes primarily to a Jewish audience, they are very, very interested in bloodlines. They're very, very interested in lineage. They want to make sure that this Messiah comes from the right stock, that He is, so to speak, of the right pedigree, that the promise of Abraham is connected in fulfillment with the seed 
even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins his genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. That's the heart of the book of Genesis right there. If you look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, you have the book of Genesis. There it is. Really four names can string together the whole of the book of Genesis for you. You'll notice he leaves out Joseph. We'll get to that in a minute. He gives us Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, and he's speaking to us of the triumvirate that we read throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many times do we read that throughout the Scripture? Well, all the time. These are the patriarchs, the foundation from which the Abrahamic promise will unfold. He starts there and then he gives to us from Jacob, Jacob's sons. And and notice the point that Abraham's family now is growing not from just a family but into a nation. Isn't that where it begins? It begins with Jacob's sons. They're now growing beyond the, the, the bounds of a family into a nation of what will become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's going to come in and through uh, Jacob. And notice in the, the, the language that he says, Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. He focuses on Judah, not on Joseph. Now, why does he focus on, on Judah rather than on, on Joseph? I mean, there's this whole large section in Genesis on, on Joseph. Why does, he, why does he not focus on, on Joseph? Because, well, Joseph is not the line from which Jesus comes. Judah is the line through which Jesus comes. And, and notice, he's not meaning something um, as if these brothers are inconsequential. You know, he had Judah and his brothers. He doesn't mean to say that the other 11 tribes or the other 11 brothers aren't important. He's just saying my genealogy has a purpose. It's tracing a seed, a particular seed. And this particular seed, this particular branch, the center of all of the family tree of the Old Testament runs in and through the royal line of Judah. Uh, Judah's line is the royal line, the line through which the, the Davidic line would come, even great King David. And so you'll see here in verse 3 how he narrows, doesn't he? From Judah's line, mentioning now Judah's twin sons, Perez and Zareth. Two sons we don't know a lot about other than their strange birth story, which we'll get to here in a minute. But with the mention of Perez, some of us are taken in our minds to the end of the book of Ruth. There's a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. And when you turn to the end of the book of Ruth, you'll actually see the exact listing of the genealogy that's here. You'll see Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. This is what you'll see in Ruth 4, 18-22. Matthew is, in a sense, rehearsing what we already know to be the lineage of the Old Testament. Now, interestingly, when you read Perez to Salmon, you're actually reading 400 years of history, just to put it in perspective. Didn't take that long to read. Took a lot longer to live, which tells you something. It tells you this: Matthew's not telling you everything. He's not telling you everything. There were more people born in those four hundred years than this line. Now he's focusing on a particular line. He's focusing on a representative genealogy, a representative genealogy with a theological intent. He wants us to see the promise. He wants us to see the line of the promise draw straight from the Abrahamic covenant all the way through Judah to the Davidic throne. 
Isn't that what we see in these first six verses? This is the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he doesn't linger. He just hastens on. Salmon, the father of Boaz. There's the Ruth note. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, yes, the father of King David. Israelites, as they would have read these first six verses of the genealogy of Matthew, they would have said to themselves, we're on the right track. Matthew's off to a great start. This is the bloodline that we've been watching since the time of Abraham. And we saw Isaac born, and we saw Jacob, and then we saw the 12 tribes, and then we got to the land, and we saw the royal line, Judah, and we saw David, and we've seen the unfolding of God's promise. He's been faithful. This is genealogical promise. But Matthew's not done. You see, Matthew moves from genealogical promise to, well, genealogical problems. We all know this very well. Some of us in here have gone to Ancestry.com. Some of us have sent little pieces of our hair and, and blood and off to these DNA testing places to figure out who we are and where we've come from. And then we learned on the results coming back that we're mutts. We're mutts, I tell you. We're, we're from all over the place. We, we come from all kinds of places. And and it's always different than we expect. I love looking back at, at, at genealogies. I just a few years ago had, had learned from my father-in-law that on his mother's side, it went all the way back to Scottish ancestry, back to the Knox clan. Oh, you can imagine it made my Presbyterian heart go pitter-patter when I <laughs> heard that. It, it might be the namesake of my own firstborn son, for instance, but then I, I, I learned the genealogical promise of being from the Knox clan, and then, and then O'Sheridan being the old name for Sheridan, that old Irish sound you see, that, that the O was dropped in the migration to the, to the U.S., and the, the language of Sheridan was morphed into Sheridan, and yes, it could be a scribal error, but as we, as we looked over the history of Longford County in Ireland and began to see, um, our movement of our people into the U.S., we begin to find out, as one told me in no uncertain terms, it's likely that they changed their names because of criminal background. <laughs> genealogical promise, genealogical problems, you see. Both are here. Suffice it to say, there are names and stories embedded in Matthew 1 through 6 that would not have brought a smile to the Jews' face as they read it. In fact, the Pharisees would have been downright frustrated and even angry that the muddiness of what was looking like a clean line is not the story that Matthew tells. He makes it complicated. To start, he lists four women. Four women in these six verses. It's highly unusual in, in biblical genealogies. If you were to survey the genealogies of Scripture, women rarely make an appearance in those genealogies. And when they do, it's usually because there's a generational gap of, of some sort or there's, there's, a, there's a story of a particular woman in the Old Testament that helps bring, bring honor and, um, and, and bring dignity, uh, so to speak, to the, to the line. Uh, if that were the case, you would expect, wouldn't you, to, to read, well, these four names. Sarah, Abraham's wife, the one who held the promised seed of Isaac at that ripe old age. 
You would have expected to have seen uh, Rebecca, <laughs> Isaac's wife, wouldn't you? You've expected to read her name in these, these four. You might have read Leah or Rachel, uh, Jacob's wives, from which the 12 tribes of Israel come. Matthew had that available to him, you understand. It's not as if he didn't know that history. And yet he said, no, I'm going to mention four other women. I'm going to mention Tamar and Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Really? These, you see, these aren't just women. It's not just unusual that they would be included in the genealogy. These are women with, shall we say, complicated stories. Very complicated stories. I mean, Tabar, who could forget her? The once wife of Judah's son. Yes, that same Judah. But after Judah's son Ur died, it was Onan, his brother, that was to fulfill the Leverite marriage and take Ur's wife as his own and continue the line of his brother through his, his wife Tamar, but he refused to fulfill uh, the duty. And because of his refusal to fulfill the duty, God's judgment fell on, on Onan. And now uh, Judah is saying to himself, I've given this woman to Ur. He died. I've given now this woman to Onan. He's died. I think we're done here. I don't think I'm going to give her to anybody else. And so Tamar, knowing her rights in Leverite marriage, takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself as a prostitute. And yes, as hard as it is to say, she tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. That the extended of her own lineage through her husband Ur might happen. And this is where we get the two names, Perez and Zerah, who are there in the text. They are the fruit of the union of Judah and Tamar. Not necessarily a high point in genealogical history. And then there's Rahab, right? A professional prostitute in wicked Canaan who's, who's known for the story in Joshua 2 of hiding those, those two spies on her own roof when the local authorities in Canaan came to look for them. And she later helped them escape from the city, lowering them down through the wall. And then there's Ruth. Well, at least here's a good one. That's not exactly how it would have registered with all of the Jews, you see. Yes, it's the sweetest love story in all of the Old Testament, but did you forget where Ruth is from? She's a Moabite. In fact, shockingly, all of these women are Gentiles. She's a Moabite of a particularly despicable kind. She is... Uh, she is one who came, shall we say, from the union of Lot and his daughters. You remember that unfortunate story in Genesis chapter 19, when there weren't any suitors uh, around fitting for the daughters. The daughters came up with a great plan. Our father likes wine. Let's give him a lot of it. And then when he loses his consciousness, we under the cloak of darkness will sneak in and, well... History tells the rest. There's the Moabites. Ruth comes from them. And then while we're at it, let's start with Bathsheba. 
since we're on a roll in everything, let's throw in Bathsheba, except let's don't even name her. She's not even named, except she is called the wife of Uriah the Hittite, as if to make a point. A note that's laden with significance and meaning. Matthew's taken us back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 to the tragic drama of David. Yes, the high water mark in the, in the whole of the history of Israel. When he looked out upon Bathsheba bathing from his palace veranda, and he took in her beauty and he let his flesh take over. And David took for himself Bathsheba and much to his chagrin, a child began to form within her. And instead of confession, David went to conspiracy. He conspired through deceits and deceptions to try to get Uriah, her husband, home so that in some way, shape, or form, his unfaithfulness could be covered. But when all else failed, he decided in desperation to issue military orders that would lead to the inevitable death of Uriah. Not exactly a stellar genealogy, you see. A genealogy of promise, yes. But a genealogy full of problems. What a tangled web we weave. Or or what a twisted tree we have grown. A tree, a family tree, of which Jesus is a part. What are we to make of this? What do we make of Matthew's genealogical promise and genealogical problems as a son of Abraham? Well, I'm glad you, you asked. For the promise and the problems actually lead us to the purpose. Yeah, there's a purpose in this genealogy. You remember, Matthew himself is a Jew, a tax collector, probably not the, the most beloved among his uh, fellow Jews. He's writing to this Jewish audience who took great pride in their Abrahamic lineage. That's why, no doubt, Matthew repeatedly throughout his gospel and even here in the genealogy draws out the importance of the Abrahamic promise. But what's interesting in Matthew's gospel is he's constantly putting for the Jewish reader a kind of foil, a kind of fly in the ointment throughout the writing of his gospel. He gives to them the promises of Abraham, and then he tells them the rest of the story, which leaves them off balance, you see, seeing promise in their genealogy, but seeing problems. Not only does he give us these women, they're all four Gentiles, and they're all four complicated, and they've all four been used by the Lord for the bringing forth of the seed of Abraham. Over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, when he brings up the Abrahamic promise, he normally reminds the Jews that they don't get the promise simply by being of the same blood. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, just a couple of chapters from where we are. Do not presume to say to yourselves, speaking to the Jews and the Pharisees, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up these stones in order to raise children of Abraham. Hmm. Jesus seems to be putting these children of Abraham in their place as if to tell them that because they have the bloodlines of Abraham running through their veins, it's not a sure fit that they are prepared for the coming of Abraham's seed, even the Messiah. Or in Matthew chapter 8, 
in referencing the Roman centurion, yes, that's right, Gentile faith, of which Jesus says he's not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Should sound familiar. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Many will come from the east and the west, from all over the world, to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those who are a part of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. You see, the promised seed of Abraham seems to be suggesting over and over throughout the book of Matthew that the sons of Abraham by flesh are not assured of a salvific future simply because they're a part of a biological lineage. But it's instead those who trust in Christ, the seed of Abraham, by faith. You see those four women with these four complicated stories, Rahab and Tamar, Canaanites, Ruth, a Moabite, Bathsheba, married to a Hittite. These stories seed for us the reality of the mission for why Jesus has come. He's come not simply for those who are Jews by blood. He's come for those who will be Jews by faith. Those who will be a part of the Israel of God. He has chosen people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation who will come from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Abraham's promise. The Jews had in large part forgotten the verbiage that he will make of him a great name and that through him, how many families of the earth will be blessed? All of them. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Going from every square inch of the known world. And remarkably, you have this picture of the purpose of what this genealogy is revealing to us. That God has come for the likes of people like most of us here in this room. Who can't boast as the Pharisees did of being of the blood of Abraham. But we, according to Galatians chapter 3, are sons of Abraham by faith. By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. It is those who have trusted in Christ by faith who are the true seed of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham, the one in whom the promised salvation has come. You know, all of us in our genealogical histories are selective, aren't we? We like to remember the stories we like to remember, and we try to forget the stories that we, well, try to forget. I mean, for instance, when you think of Abraham, what do you think of? The man of faith followed where the Lord had called. But do you think of Abraham who faithlessly slept with Hagar to produce with her Ishmael, a child who would not be of the promise, who would forever be a thorn in the side to the people of Israel? Do you remember him lying to protect himself while putting his own wife in jeopardy? being concerned not about the seed, but about his own flesh? What do you think of when you think about Isaac? I think father like son. 
Someone who did the exact same thing as his father to his own wife, Rebecca, and showed forth his faithlessness to the promises of God. And Jacob, oh, where do we begin? Where do we even begin? And Judah, thankfully we have Judah, the one who sold Joseph into slavery, the one who slept with Tamar. Thankfully we have Judah. Now what is the genealogy telling us? It's telling us that we need Jesus, you see. It's telling us very simply that we need Jesus. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That's what it's telling us. That no matter what bloodlines you've come from, no matter what stock or pedigree you hail from, it's not good enough. And it never will be. It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Might you know the redemption that comes to those who are the promised sons of faith. As we study the genealogical promise and problems and purposes of this genealogy, I hope what it does for you is it produces genealogical humility. Some of us in this room like to tell those stories, right? From the Noxian clan. But some of us forget that our names have been changed because of criminal activity. Wherever it is that you've come from, Know that 1 Corinthians stands true. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are from righteous standings or memorable births. Remember, it's the weak things of the Lord that the Lord uses as strength. It's the things that the world has forgotten that the Lord remembers. It's those who are most in need and know it who are the ones that are welcome to be sons and daughters of Abraham. Maybe part of what we need to do is to humble ourselves today and own those parts of our own story. Those genealogical twists and turns that, well, we as a family don't talk about and that we foolishly think in our lives we've overcome. Oh, be be honest with yourself. Look at your own personal history. Look at your own family history. There's no cleanliness of bloodline here. No, there's a blood that has to be shed for the muddiness of the bloodline that is yours and mine. And remarkably, the son who was born to Mary and Joseph more than 2,000 years ago would be the blood that the prophet Isaiah tells us will wash us as white as snow. You see, he is the name above all names. Throughout all of history. And this Advent again, He makes it known to you. Trust in Him. He's all you've got. And He's all you need. Father in heaven, we pray that You would humble us. We don't want to be those arrogant and evildoers on the day of the Lord. And whom when You return in Your second coming... The fruit and the root are burned. We want to be those who fear Your name. Who recognize Your power and Your glory. And who when the sun rises, it doesn't burn us, but is to us the warmth of a new day. Matthew is teaching us that a new day has dawned. A new beginning has begun. 
and that all who are in Christ Jesus are those who have been born again. Lord, teach us this day not to be confident in our bloodlines or confident in our performances, but to be confident in the one who has shed his blood and who has performed perfectly on our behalf. Even the righteous one who is our Savior and our Lord, Jesus is his name. Today we acknowledge again, his name is above all names. And we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this is so. Hasten the day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.